Have you ever dropped your phone on your face while scrolling through social media? Have you ever unintentionally harmed yourself? Answering yes to either of these questions heeds the rudimentary concept of autoimmunity. Patients who are diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease suffer from autoimmune disabling inflammation of the gastrointestinal tract and may be subdivided into two general diagnoses, Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Ulcerative colitis is a disease of the colonic mucosa, affecting part of or the entirety of the colon with rectal involvement. Crohn's disease is a disease of transmural inflammation and frequently affects the entire gastrointestinal tract, or gum to bum, and patients may present with severe complications such as granulomas, strictures, and fistulae. The management of the patient with an acute flare of ulcerative colitis involves managing local and systemic complications, inducing remission, and providing the appropriate follow-up. Today, our patient has ulcerative colitis, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled, Approach to the Ulcerative Colitis Flare. Time for our minute physiology. The intestinal mucosa, composed of the epithelium and lamina propria, serves as a physical and functional barrier to the contents of the intestinal lumen. The epithelium is composed of typical epithelial cells, forming tight junctions to prevent translocation of the intramural contents, and specialized cells, termed goblet and panath cells. Goblet cells secrete mucus, while panath cells secrete antimicrobial peptides, such as alpha defensins. Together, these tight junctions and specialized secretions form our body's first defense from the external environment. The lamina propria is composed of loose connective tissue and contains immune cells, forming a functional barrier of immune tolerance to the intestinal microbiota and a barometer of host defense. In inflammatory bowel disease, defects in the epithelium and lamina propria produce unyielding inflammation and local or systemic complications. Defects in the intestinal epithelium widen tight junctions and allow translocation of intraluminal contents. Continued inflammation allows infiltration of excessive innate immune cells, such as neutrophils, macrophages, dendritic cells, and natural killer T cells, and adaptive immune cells, such as B and helper T cells, into the lamina propria, generating an uncontrolled and perpetual inflammatory response. Continued stimulation of innate pattern recognition receptors, such as toll-like receptors and nucleotide oligomerization domains, produces downstream upregulation of tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-1 beta, interferon gamma, and inflammatory cytokines. Together, increased levels of chemokines and cytokines perpetuate the cycle of inflammation. This worsens disease, but also provides the clinician with a unique opportunity for targeted therapies. Ulcerative colitis is a disease of the clonic mucosa. Bloody diarrhea, with or without mucus, is the hallmark clinical sign. Patients will experience variable timeframes between relapse and remission, and the clinician is charged with determining disease severity, extent, treatment modalities, and appropriate discharge planning. 
Though continually changing, the prevalence of ulcerative colitis is roughly 7.6 to 246 cases per 100,000 per year. There are two theories surrounding the etiology of this disease. The first is the theory of Western environment and lifestyle, where diet, poor lifestyle choices, stress, and higher socioeconomic status are all disease-exacerbating factors. Interestingly, though clinicians should be cautious in providing this information to the patient, smoking has been shown to be protective for the development of ulcerative colitis, and in those with a diagnosis associated with milder disease. The second is a theory of genetics. In contrast to Crohn's disease, research has not been able to clearly draw a link between genetic mutations and the development of ulcerative colitis. Due to the heterogeneity of genetic mutations found within patients diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, current guidelines do not recommend for genetic screening to assess risk. As an example, variants ECM1, HNF4A, CDH1, and LAMB1 may be associated with epithelial dysfunction, while PRDM1, IRF5, NKX23 may be associated with transcription dysregulation and downstream effects. When approaching the patient with suspected ulcerative colitis, the clinician must have a sound understanding of the acute and chronic gastrointestinal consequences, as well as the extraintestinal manifestations of the disease. Your history and physical exam should focus on highlighting these clinical findings and grading disease severity. Intestinal involvement frequently manifests as bloody diarrhea with or without mucus. In the acute setting, this places the patient at high risk for hemodynamic compromise and depending upon disease extent, fulminant colitis or toxic megacolon. Toxic megacolon is classically defined as severe colonic distension over six centimeters, accompanied by fever, pain, tenderness, and intense leukocytosis. Both fulminant colitis and toxic megacolon place the patient at increased risk for bowel perforation, and diligence is always required. On the other hand, chronic inflammation and epithelial dysplasia places the patient at an increased risk for colon cancer. It has been quoted that a patient's cumulative risk of colorectal cancer is 20-30% to at 30 years of disease. You should note that your patient is at a higher risk of developing colorectal cancer with a young age of onset, longer duration of the disease, extensive disease and severe inflammation, concurrent diagnosis of primary sclerosing cholangitis, and family history of colorectal cancer. The extraintestinal manifestations of ulcerative colitis are secondary to the autoimmune nature of the disease. In addition to impaired mucosal immune response, it has been shown that ulcerative colitis is associated with the autoimmune production of perinuclear antineutrophil cytoplasmic antibodies, PANCA, which form against antigens in the cytoplasm of neutrophilic granulocytes and monocytes, and circulating IgG1. Circulating IgG1 antibodies are formed against the colonic epithelial antigen shared with the skin, eye, joints, and hepatobiliary epithelium. Skin complications include erythema nodosum, pyoderma gangrenosum, and oral ulcers. Eye complications include episcleritis, scleritis, uveitis, and iritis. Joint complications include either a migratory peripheral arthritis affecting the large joints and mirroring disease activity, or an axial arthritis independent of disease activity, such as ankylosing spondylitis and sacroiliitis. 
Finally, hepatobiliary complications include primary sclerosing cholangitis, fatty infiltration of the liver, and autoimmune liver disease. Perhaps most important is your ability to classify disease severity based on history, physical exam, and laboratory findings. This step is crucial for communication to specialist colleagues and treatment decisions. The Mayo Score Disease Activity Index for Ulcerative Colitis is a universal language amongst clinicians and must be memorized or referenced on MD-Calc. Check out our website for a link to this reference. Based upon stool frequency, rectal bleeding, findings on flexible proctosigmoidoscopy, and the physician's global assessment, the patient is awarded a maximum of 12 points where zero is no disease activity and 12 is very severe disease. Most concerning is the patient with severe ulcerative colitis. Though not exhaustive, the differential diagnosis of bloody diarrhea includes autoimmune colitis, such as Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, infectious colitis, ischemic colitis, pseudomembranous colitis, and medication side effect. Before ordering investigations, your history and physical exam should allow you to differentiate between these clinical entities. Infectious colitis, though possibly presenting with bloody diarrhea, is frequently associated with a history of travel, new food exposure, sick contacts, or immunosuppression. Ischemic colitis classically presents across clonic watershed areas, with pain usually localized across the descending sigmoid colon, and is frequently diagnosed in patients with multiple vascular risk factors and or a history of poor PO intake. Pseudomembranous colitis is usually associated with recent antibiotic use and Clostridium difficile infection, and is definitively diagnosed via endoscopy. Of course, patients who are diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease may have a predisposition to pseudomembranous colitis. Finally, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, chemotherapy, or other immunosuppressant medications may yield bloody diarrhea as a side effect. Your patient is admitted with severe ulcerative colitis, and you must decide what investigations to order, what empiric medication to give, and who to contact. You should admit your patient to a monitored setting with regular nursing support given concerns of toxic megacolon, bowel perforation, and systemic illness. Your patient may be offered a normal diet as long as there are no contraindications or aspiration concerns. According to current guidelines, baseline investigation should include a complete blood count, inflammatory marker, either CRP or ESR, a complete abdominal radiograph, and assays of stool samples for Clostridium difficile and bacterial pathogens. Abdominal radiographs can assess for radiographic evidence of megacolon, thumbprinting, pneumostosis intestinalis, and perforation. In the event that your patient is in pain, narcotics should be avoided given concerns of constipation and impaired gastrointestinal motility and, unless absolutely indicated, empiric antibiotics are not recommended. Intravenous high-dose corticosteroids is the first-line medication for your patient. Finally, it is recommended that your patient be seen by gastroenterology and scheduled for a early flexible sigmoidoscopy with biopsies to assess severity, plus or minus Clostridium difficile infection, or cytomegalovirus colitis. In the event that there is any concern of toxic megacolon, early surgical consultation should be made. 
Over the next 72 hours, you should carefully observe your patient for clinical, laboratory, and radiographic evidence of improvement. Order serial abdominal radiography, given the elevated risk of toxic megacolon and perforation, with the potential for suppressed signs of peritonitis in patients with prior corticosteroid or immunosuppressive treatment. Serial CRP may serve as a pseudomarker of intestinal inflammation. In the event of treatment failure, you might consider treating your patient with intravenous cyclosporin, an inhibitor of interleukin-2, or infliximab, which has anti-TNF-alpha activity. However, prior to initiating any biologic therapy, it is essential that you screen the patient for tuberculosis with a chest x-ray and tuberculin skin test. Once again, over the next five to seven days, assess your patient for clinical response. For those who respond, step down to oral cyclosporin followed by azathioprine or 6-mercaptopurin or maintenance infliximab if initially treated with cyclosporin or infliximab, respectively. For those who do not respond, total or subtotal colectomy is frequently the only option left. Time for our Medicine Minute. What's all the hype about fecal transplantation, and was your GI staff really telling the truth when they mentioned transferring fecal matter between patients? A randomized clinical trial published in The Lancet in 2017, titled Multi-Donor Intensive Fecal Microbiota Transplantation for Active Ulcerative Colitis, a randomized placebo-controlled trial, showed that fecal transplantation is associated with improving clinical and endoscopic measures of disease. The article alludes to the therapeutic promise of fecal transplantation in the future treatment of active colitis. A word of advice? Don't try this at home. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled, Approach to the Ulcerative Colitis Flare. This episode was written by Dr. Anthony Sandre, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Ted Zenodinotropoulos, gastroenterologist, and Dr. Andrew Chung, general internal medicine. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai, developed by Leah Karanopoulos and Zara Morali, and overseen by Daniel Brent Vegas. This podcast was produced and recorded by Zara Morali. Music production by Laxman Zavantha Mohan. If you liked this podcast, please like and subscribe at wherever you get your podcasts. Please also check out our website, www.theinternetwork.com, for an associated infographic on ulcerative colitis. Thanks for tuning in, happy holidays, and we hope to see you again in 2020.